Well, this passage is not only a long passage that you felt as you were standing for a long period of time. This passage is also very significant. It's one of the most talked about stories in the entire book of Acts. And so we're going to spend two weeks unpacking this passage. Um, This week, we'll really dig into these first few verses, verses 16 through 19 or 20. Um, And then next week, Jamin will lead us through a conversation through the rest of this passage, um, through this famous sermon that Paul gives in Athens. Um, So this morning, I want, we'll, we'll spend most of our time digging into just one verse, verse 16. It'll be on the screen. Also invite you to put your eyes on it just so we can get this in our heads and in our imaginations for just a moment as we engage this. So verse 16 While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So Paul didn't plan to be in this very important city, Athens, but he was sent there because he encountered a dangerous situation with um, really provoked sort of mobs coming after him in Berea from Thessalonica. And so Paul finds himself in Athens and he's waiting on his um, friends, on his companions, Timothy and Silas and others. And so this is really a strange passage because we sort of see Paul just functioning like a tourist, just checking out the city, exploring, just like uh, many of us may do in our own day. Um, but we see that Paul is not just sort of this passive tourist, just taking it all in. He's, he's also um, a very present person because we see in verse 16 that he's greatly distressed by what he sees as he explores this city of Athens, the ESV says it a little more strongly, which I like. Um, It says that Paul's spirit was provoked within him. Paul's spirit was provoked within him. Now, there's a lot to unpack here. I want to spend most of our time together unpacking this one verse. Um, But the very first thing we have to start to wrap our minds around, fill our imagination with, is is this this very important place called Athens. Um, It's hard to overstate just how important this first century city was was Athens. Um, Now, you may remember from world history class, um, or if you uh, studied in college something like classics, like this is the one time in your life when this is going to be helpful. So um, you may remember from some of your classes that Athens in the Greek empire was a very important cultural, intellectual, philosophical hub that had really big um, implications on the entire Greek empire. Now, of course, when Paul's here in the first century, uh, it's no longer the Greek empire, it's the Roman empire, but when the Romans took over in the second century BC, uh, they let Athens remain an independent city. So even in this first century world, Athens is this sort of cultural hub. Um, It's not a very large place, only 25,000-ish people, uh, which relative to some places like Um, Ephesus or Rome or Antioch or Alexandria. Um, It's a much, much smaller city than those very influential cities. But nonetheless, Athens is incredibly influential and important. One scholar wrote, and I think he captures it well, that Athens did not care much about commerce, but it did care about ideas Athens didn't care much about commerce, but it did care about ideas. You see that in Luke's report here, where he says even that all these people wanted to do all day every day was sit around and talk about the latest ideas. So philosophy, 
intellectualism, all those things are happening in Athens and they're forming these sorts of undercurrents around the Roman Empire, sort of like the wallpaper on the, in the room. They're influencing and informing so much behind the scenes about the culture of the day. So some of y'all may be thinking like, man, I didn't study classics, and I didn't study philosophy, and I don't care much about philosophy. Um, But you need to recognize, just like in this first century world, the sort of cultural and philosophical influence that Athens had, the same is true for you, and the same is true for our day, that whether you dig into these different philosophical ideas or not, there are philosophical undercurrents that shape our culture and our day. Even if you're like, nope, I'm not going to be influenced by philosophy, nope, I'm going to step outside of that then you very ironically are pegging yourself as being very influenced by philosophy. That sounds a lot like postmodernism or, as philosophers today are calling it, post-postmodernism. And the point is that that you can't escape this. Like, you're a victim of the philosophical streams of our day, and it's shaping you, and it's shaping our culture. That's not wrong. I'm not critiquing that. I'm just observing that. It just, it is what it is. It's okay. But it's important for you to see that this city is super important in this time and in this place. And it's a new sort of adventure for Paul. Because Paul, if you've been with us as we've journeyed through Acts, you see that he's often in these um, sort of Jewish cities. He's often showing up in synagogues. And the message he proclaims is um, tied to the Hebrew scriptures. But here, Paul shows up in this super intellectual, super philosophical, super culturally savvy place to talk about this message of Jesus. And it's sort of a, it's, it's something that hadn't happened before. So what's going to happen? What's going to happen as Paul engages this culture with the message of Jesus? Let's see what happens. Um, so like I said, Paul here in verse 16, we see Paul just sort of playing tourist, but he's not checked out. Um, He's very present. He's very checked in. So Paul's wandering around, exploring the city, just like you may do if you visit um, Athens. Uh, And so Paul, in this day, would have seen all of these visible statues, these different idols to gods like Aphrodite and Ares and Artemis, all these different deities and gods that the people of the day worshipped and honored. There are all these physical statues and representations and idols of them. And so we see that Paul, remember, Paul is a Jewish follower of Jesus, right? So as a Jew, this would have been shocking to the Apostle Paul. Like, it's hard for us to recognize how offensive this would have been to Paul, who had the Hebrew scriptures like embedded deep down in his DNA. Like underneath all of the Hebrew scriptures is this idea, the very first commandment of the Ten Commandments. You've probably heard it before. You shall have no other gods before me. This monotheistic idea is at the heart of Paul's faith as a Jewish follower of Jesus. So this would have been scandalous and shocking. And Paul is right to feel distressed and to have his spirit provoked. For Paul, idolatry, worshiping gods other than Yahweh, 
would be the root, the root, what's underneath any sort of personal and corporate sin in the world. Paul would have thought your impulse to worship is right and good. In fact, you see it in the sermon he gives. I see that you are very religious. Your impulse to worship something is very right and good, but you're worshiping anything other than Yahweh is, is you missing the mark. It's you missing out. So we see Paul really engaged and really distressed by the things that he's witnessing and seeing as he's exploring, as he's playing tourist in Athens. So it's important to point out here that Paul is doing one of our eight practices as a church. Um, We all remember during the season of Lent, we unpacked together these eight practices that uh, different things that we're doing together as um, followers of Jesus, as a community. One of those eight practices is that we want to be people who engage culture. We engage culture. And we see Paul doing that here. Paul's taking it in. Paul's exploring. And we see um, that Paul is functioning. This is an important phrase. Paul's functioning as this sort of cultural anthropologist, this cultural anthropologist, listening to and observing all that's going on, looking at these physical, visible idols, and then as a cultural anthropologist, discerning and paying attention to and observing the stories that are happening underneath those visible idols. Because idols tell stories. They tell stories about us as humans longing for things, us being people who are hungry and thirsty for the divine, people, humans who are looking for life and purpose and belonging and meaning in the world. So Paul's discerning and paying attention to all those stories that are woven throughout underneath the surface of this culture But, like I mentioned, Paul is not merely engaging culture. He's also, one of our other eight practices, he's choosing presence. He's present enough to observe things, but then be moved by those things. And to take inventory and to understand what's going on inside of himself as he's interacting with things outside of himself. And it's important for us to see this, because if we merely engage culture without being present in it, then we're just consumers of culture, right? We're just absorbing culture. But this combination, these two practices together, engaging culture, paying attention, discerning, listening to the stories that are happening in culture around us, and choosing presence, being really present as a person, what's going on inside of me in the midst of that, those two practices happening simultaneous can be a a very powerful combination in our world. When we're practicing those two things together, when we're not just consumers, but we're engaging culture and present in culture, it can be a very powerful force in the world, and we see that with the Apostle Paul. So as Paul is engaging culture... As Paul is choosing presence, what what happens next? Look at verse 17. We see that Paul, distressed and provoked, goes to a familiar place for him. He goes to the synagogue, and he reasons in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks. 
as well as in the marketplace, this kind of common space where people would be. He reasons with them in the marketplace day by day with any people who happened to be there. So this is important. Listen to this. Paul observes as a cultural anthropologist these idols. He discerns the stories underneath those idols, and then he confronts those stories with the story of Jesus. Paul confronts those stories with the story of Jesus. Now, I'll say this first. Most of us, not all of us, but most of us don't like confrontation, right? I know some of y'all do. Um, Enneagram 8, uh, I know, I know, but I'm not, I'm not one of you. Um, most of us, myself included, I do not like confrontation. Like, I want to avoid it. I don't want anything to do with confrontation. But that's what Paul is doing here. Paul is confronting these idols with the story of Jesus. Let me read for you this quote. It's challenging for me as a person who would rather check out rather than con- confront. Um, from Francis Schaeffer, he says this, truth carries with it confrontation. Truth demands confrontation, loving confrontation, but confrontation nonetheless. Paul is so caught up in, he's so swept up in, so moved by the story of Jesus that he can't help but to confront the idols that he sees around him. It's a confrontational message. What's the confrontation? What's the message? We see it in verse 18. Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. We dove really deep into this a couple of weeks ago. Um, But this message never got boring or tired to Paul, so I hope that it also doesn't grow boring or tired to us. This message that the gospel... See, 1 Corinthians 15, the gospel is the message about Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus. We make it about a lot of other things in our 21st century world. Uh, We make it about going to heaven when we die. Uh, We make it about uh, being sinners and what do we do with that. But the gospel message for Paul over and over and over. We see it in every chapter in the book of Acts. You see it clearly in 1 Corinthians 15. This is the gospel, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with Scripture, and on the third day rose again. And this is a confrontational message, because in this first century world, Paul is saying that Jesus is king and Caesar is not, which is deadly. Paul is saying Jesus is God, and these idols are not. Bend your knee not to these idols, but bend your knee to Jesus as your Lord and as your King. Worship Jesus alone. And then you see that it's confrontational in verse 18, based on how his listeners respond to him. Look at this. There's a group of Epicurean philosophers and Stoic philosophers, these two um, important streams of philosophy that existed in the day, and they began to debate with Paul. And some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, 
he seems to be advocating for foreign gods, which to us does not sound like that big of a deal. Uh, But that's the accusation that landed a couple centuries earlier, Socrates in jail. He seems to be advocating for foreign gods. That's the accusation that led to Socrates being killed. This is a really confrontational message, and people are responding in that sort of way. Paul's talking about Jesus and the resurrection. He seems to be talking about foreign gods, these different philosophers say. Um, it's really interesting. Could, it may just be me. but um, So Paul here is, is sharing and preaching and having conversations in Greek, right? Uh, he's in Athens. And uh, so Paul is talking about Iesu, Jesus, and he's also talking about Anastasis, resurrection, which at the time, this was a common Greek name. And so Paul's listeners were thinking, Paul's teaching us about these two foreign gods, Jesus and Anastasis. And Paul's like, no, you're missing the point. Let me preach this sermon for you, which Jamin will talk more about next week. So it's a confrontational message. Jesus is Lord and King, and Jesus rose from the dead. But, but it's also a loving message, And there's compassion and love all underneath Paul's conversations and underneath his sermon. Paul's saying over and over and over, you're longing for this God. All of this is just reminding me that you're thirsty for life. You're hungry for the bread that will satisfy your souls and your hearts. This is the one that you've been longing for. I'm here to tell you about him, Jesus. Look at this quote. I put it in your bulletin by C.S. Lewis from perhaps his most famous book, Mere Christianity. He writes this, God made us. God invented us as a man invents a car. A car is made to run on gasoline, and it would not run properly on anything else. Now, God designed the human machine to run on himself. He himself is the fuel our spirits were designed to burn, or the food our spirits were designed to feed on. There is no other. That is why it is just no good asking God to make us happy in our own way without bothering about religion. God cannot give us a happiness and peace apart from himself because it is not there. There is no such thing. There's this sense of restlessness with the Athenians. Like they just show up every day and they just talk about the latest ideas. Like, is there something out there that will finally satisfy our souls? There's this sense of restlessness. And so Paul is lovingly like, Jesus is the one Jesus is the one you've been searching for in all these conversations. He's here. He's not very far. You've been feeling your way towards him. So it's a loving message. Um, In another C.S. Lewis book, um, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, part of the Chronicles of Narnia series, you may have read the book uh, or seen the movie. Uh, If you've seen the movie, read the book. This is better, always. Um, There's this, man, there's this moving scene near the end of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, where two of the main characters, Lucy and Susan, are at the stone table, and they see the wicked white witch 
murder and kill the good and faithful and kind and loving lion, Aslan. And so after that scene, they're left in despair and hopelessness. We thought Aslan was the one. Like there is this sense of restlessness in us, but when we were with him, there was peace and there was contentment and there was satisfaction and there was joy. What is there left? Despair, hopelessness. And so they spend a night in that despair and in that hopelessness. And then the next morning, as the sun rises, they see in the sunrise Aslan, not dead, but alive. And they're shocked and they're confused and they're bewildered. And so they approach Aslan and they're like, Aslan, Aslan, how? Aslan, are you, are you alive? And this is how Aslan responds. He says, though the witch knew the deep magic, there is deeper magic still, which she did not know. Paul shows up on the scene in Athens and he's like, hey, you've been dabbling in deep magic, but there is a deeper magic still, which you do not know about and which I'm here to tell you about. So that's my question for you is, have you tasted the deeper magic? Are you swept up in this story? My challenge for you would just be quite simply to, to look at Jesus. Wherever you are in your journey, maybe just give it another shot. Re-examine the Gospels, the stories in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and just look at and allow your heart to be moved by this man, Jesus. Because this is the deeper magic that you're longing for. Like St. Augustine says, this is the one that you will be restless. Your heart will be restless until your heart finds its rest in him. So this is a loving confrontation that Paul gives these Athenians. And so now we have to ask ourselves, Paul engages with the idols in Athens. And so what does it look like for us to engage with the idols in our own day? We may think this story is kind of strange and foreign and ancient and we're enlightened modern people, right? And obviously, if you walk around Memphis or if you go elsewhere and you're doing the tourist thing exploring, you're probably not seeing sort of like visible um, physical statues and idols that people are bowing down and worshiping. But there's idolatry in our own day. There's idolatry in our own hearts as well. Because we too, like the Athenians, are humans. No matter how enlightened or mature or progressed we may be, we too are humans. And one, one Bible scholar, theologian says that our hearts as humans are like an idol factory. Tim Keller says this, that an idol is anything that absorbs your heart and your imagination more than God 
anything you seek to give what only God can give. And all of us and all of our culture around us is engaging in idolatry in this way, searching for the divine, searching for satisfaction and rest. Our culture today may be uh, the most sort of like frenzied and hectic culture that has ever existed. We're longing for rest. Is there any rest for our souls? Is there any contentment? Is there any satisfaction, joy, peace? What does it look like for us as 21st century people to engage the idols of our day? What does it look like for you to be a cultural anthropologist? To look around and discern like, what are the idols around me? What's going on around me? And what are the stories underneath those idols? And what does it look like for me to lovingly confront those stories with the story of Jesus? What does it look like for us to engage culture and as we're engaging cultures to be so present that we're moved by culture in whatever way we are um, so that we can confront in this way? Um, we'll practice a couple of different things. So the first, the first little bit of practice, a little bit of mind, imagination exercise we can do together um, there's one scholar, writer, his name is James K.A. Smith, philosopher. Uh, he says that the place that idols are most present and visible in our world today is the shopping mall. I didn't think, I, uh, like I was thinking about this and I'm like, does anybody go to the mall anymore? And then this morning I was on a run with a guy in my neighborhood and he's like, yeah, yesterday I was at the mall. And I'm like, okay, great. Well, I'll go with this because um, I was, I didn't know at the point. Um, but if you've walked into a mall, even if it's been, like for me, it's, it's been a little bit, you know? Like I, I didn't go to a mall yesterday, but I still remember what it's like to walk into a mall and to be bombarded by not just sights, not just sounds, but smells. Like the mall engages your whole body. Like the mall knows, whoever is behind malls, they know that we're worshiping creatures, like full-bodied worshiping creatures. And they've, I don't know, I was going to say they've mastered the art. Man, we'll just go with that. They've mastered the art of engaging you as a person with all of the things you see. It's overwhelming. All of the things you hear, all the noise, all the sounds, and even all of the things you smell, like Auntie Anne's pretzels and um, incredible cookies or whatever it's called, like all these smells it engages you as a full person. The idol here, of course, is in our Western world in 2019, consumerism. That we're not satisfied until we get whatever it is that we need to get. We have these longing spirits. We want, we want. If we get that, then we'll be happy. If the mall doesn't connect with you because we're in Midtown and not Cordova, and it's 2019 and not 2005, if the mall doesn't connect with you, there's something there for you too. What does consumerism as an idol look like in your world, whatever your world might be? Perhaps it's, um, perhaps it's a sense of like wanderlust, like always going and never present, always trying to avoid, always trying to have your longings satisfied, but never getting there. 
whether it's moving or traveling or going or going or going. Maybe it's like, I got to have that latest thing, whatever it is, technology or shoes or clothes. I got to have that. And I'm discontent. Like my heart is restless until I get that thing. Maybe it's, this probably connects with some of us. Maybe it's jobs, right? Like I'm searching for something that will satisfy the deepest parts of me. And my day-to-day vocation just seems so stale and pointless and worthless. So let me just move on. Maybe this next thing will be it, right? We're consumeristic people. This is why Paul so wisely writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil in our world. Not money itself, it's neutral, but the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil in our world. And it's easy to see and engage with the story that's underneath the idol of consumerism, right? That we're longing creatures, we're worshiping creatures. We're hungry, we're looking for life, we're grasping for life. But Jesus, the story of Jesus says that there is this one who says to us, come to me, come to me and I'll give you the rest that you so crave. Come to me and drink deeply living water where you can find life that you're craving, that you're chasing, that you're just like spinning like a hamster on a wheel going for, come find life in me. There's another idol that we see in our day, um, and it's the idol of power, right? Um, The quest, the desire to, to be on top, to be, even if you don't use the word power, but to be a person of influence, a person whom others look to as someone who's important, someone that I need to listen to, someone that I need to follow, whether it's politicians or business people fighting for their own gain, even if it's at the expense of other people, even if there's a wake of harmed people left in their path. We're a culture that loves and grasps for more and more power and influence and leadership. But the story of Jesus again confronts that and says that Jesus, though he was God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. That Jesus didn't hoard power, but he gave power up that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And then ultimately to give his very life up to serve and to love others. And then he calls us as followers of Jesus to follow in his path, to serve others, to give power away, to give influence away, to love other people over ourselves to not harm, but to love and to be empathetic with other people as humans. So you you see, like you get the picture. We could go on and on with this, right? Like our world is filled with idols. Our culture is filled with idols. And what does it look like to confront those idols with the story of Jesus? But there's one last thing that's really important, really important for you to hear this, for me to hear this. Um, Before we're sent out to um, engage culture, right, and choose presence and to engage these sorts of cultural idols of our day, 
you first have to do the really hard work of engaging your own idols. Before you look out there, you have to do some really hard work in here. And then I would say that you have to keep on coming back and keep on doing that work. This is why another one of our practices as a church is seek health. What does it look like for you to take care of yourself? Which can mean, but it doesn't always mean taking care of yourself like um, with like a Netflix day or a spa day. Seeking health means stepping into really hard interior heart work. So what does it look like for you to look in here first before you look out there? Because that's what will stir within you empathy for other people, empathy for other humans, compassion and love for our world and our culture in which we find ourselves. For me, um, over the past couple of years, as I've kind of like dipped my toes in all of these different streams, um, I've grown to see more than I ever have before uh, that there's an idol I worship, um, that I worship the idol of achievement and success, right? Like, I want to make something of myself. I want to achieve things. I want to do things. I want to prove to other people that I'm worth something. But... As I do and I've done and I continue to do the hard work of looking at like what are the stories underneath that idol? That this is the thing I have to have in order for this restless soul to finally find rest and peace. What's the story underneath that? And there's a lot and there's a lot that I've yet to discover, but some of the narratives that I've bought into is are things like, if you want to be loved, if you want to be accepted, then you have to prove yourself to other people. Like underneath all these idols, there's a story that I really just want to belong and I want people to love me and I want to be accepted. And so what I find as I engage that, confront that with the story of Jesus is that just like we're about to engage in communion, Jesus came for me when I wasn't at my best, but he died for my sins, like Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, when I was at my worst, that I'm loved and I'm accepted, and I confront these idols with other people, where when I bring the real me, I'm met with a lot of love and acceptance. And that's the church that we want to be. That's what we mean when we say we want to be a place where people can belong. That we want you and people who aren't even here yet to be able to bring their real selves here and to be met with love and acceptance. You belong here. No matter what you believe, you can belong here first. And so as I've confronted those idols with the story of Jesus, practicing rhythms like communion every week and engaging in real relationship with other people, I see more and more, and I have to remind myself of this every day, that Drew, you're loved and you're accepted just as you are. 
And that's created in me this, this deeper intimacy than I ever knew before with people, with real people and with the Lord as well. And so I invite you to do that hard interior work, to seek health, to engage the idols in your heart, and then for us as a people to be cultural anthropologists in our world. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to come to participate in communion. And this is what I invite you to do, um, to pause, and we'll have some silence for you to pause and reflect and consider, like, what are the idols in my heart, and what are the stories underneath those idols? And nothing confronts those stories better than receiving and participating in this sacred act of Holy Communion. So let's pray. Lord, thank you for this story in Acts chapter 17. And I do pray that you would help us, that you give us grace to see, help us to do the hard interior work of engaging the idols in our own heart, of examining the stories that we bought into, and that you'd bring comfort and you'd bring healing, that we would be more whole and true people. Those are the sorts of people that will bring refreshment to the world around us. So Lord, I pray that you would meet us. Please meet us here in this bread and in this wine. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.